0: Uh, grab your Bibles, turn to Psalm 127. Uh, Psalm 127. I mentioned last week there are two Psalms attributed uh, to him. And Psalm 72 we talked about may have have been by him, may have been for him, may have been in the spirit of him. Some debate there. Uh, This one is similar, but probably uh, traces a similar lineage back to Solomon. And these are the two that we know of that are associated with him. And um, this is a passage I sus- uh, suspect you will be you will recognize, right? You've, you've read this before. And uh, as such, we, we're not going to make it past verse 2. It just sort of happens that way sometimes, uh, which will allow us to, Lord and finish it next week. It is broken down into two parts, so it works out well. So with that, if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's word. We'll begin in verse 1 under the subtitle. Unless the Lord builds the house and those who... Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for He gives to His beloved sleep. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask, as we always do, that You would transform us, Lord. These, um, these prayers, we ask that You would hear them, for we are unworthy of them. We are unworthy of Your grace. Lord, we are in desperate need of your mercy. So, Lord, take these words and do something mighty with them. May I decrease so you can increase. In the name, so we pray. Amen. Seated. The words were un- unexpected but perfect for a a, a headline craving media. The words spoken by none other than Magic Johnson in the nineteen eighties was, "I want to be traded." Everyone knew that. Magic Johnson was a frustrated player. I believe it's the 1983-1984 season, and everyone knew he was expected, but no one expected him to want to be traded. After all, Jackson had just, um, or Johnson rather, had just signed uh, what is a 25-year contract with the Lakers, something that was unheard of to this day in the history of professional sports or even the NBA. The source of his critique of his coach, and the issue was his. Beef with his coach was that after winning the national championship, um, that the the coach that won that uh, became the the interim head coach halfway through the season after a tragic accident, and this new coach by the name of Westhead, Paul Westhead, had taken over and at, and once he after he winning the national championship started the season as the head coach, he had course, came in halfway through the year before. He instituted his own system, his own offense. He called it, and I'm not making this up, he called it the system. And the problem with the system was it was not designed for the players that he had. I don't know if you thought about this much when it comes to any sport, basketball, soccer, football, whatever, is, is that uh, you will either start with a system of offense or defense and build players around it, or you'll come in with the players you have, and you have to bring the system that fits them. Right? This is coaching 101. There's no point in having a run-and-gun offense with a bunch of players who are slow. Right? No point in having a high-flying offense if you have a team that's gifted in defense. Right? This makes sense and so the lakers were designed the showtime lakers were designed to be running and gunning that's how they won the national championship under the previous coach but this coach decided he wanted something different he had the system was based off of uh, basically areas that each player would run to and magic johnson loathed it and when he announced i wanted to be traded he was saying publicly what he felt his, the, the owner and other people in charge, like Jerry West and others, weren't listening. He was saying that either Paul West had the head coach, leave and he takes the system with him, or I leave, one or the other. And what we discovered afterwards is that magic was in many ways speaking for the entire team. One of them was going to have to go. Well, if you know the story, Dr. Jerry Buss, the owner of the Lakers, decided to cave the magic wishes, which created a, its own problems. He fired the coach and uh, ended up hiring uh, what would eventually become a permanent hire, uh, none other than former Kentucky Wildcat player, Pat Riley. Yeah, yeah I, 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 just, I might as well just acknowledge the fact where he went to school, right? Uh, Pat Riley since then has been in like a quarter of the national championship games as either a head coach, player, or as like GM or something. It's really amazing what Pat Riley has. Um, This is when Riley decided to start slick his hair back in case you wanted to know the history behind all that. Mm -hmm. Well, everyone knew that the system wasn't working. Something had to change. That's the point. Something had to change. We could say something similar about life. But the difference between the Showtime Lakers and us is that we know something has to change, but often we are too hesitant to make the change. We hold on to what isn't working, hoping that eventually it'll work out. And what we see Solomon doing here in these opening verses is he is showing us what is wrong. And that what is wrong, knowing that it is wrong, we must make a drastic change. So in a nutshell, what we see in verses 1 to 2, if we were were to look at the entire psalm, it's broken into two parts. Here is the first part of the psalm, and that is, this is the secret, the vain living. This is the thing that has to change, the secret to vain living. You see it there in verse 1. I'm not making it up, it's there in the text. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Again in verse 1, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Notice that the key word in the first verse, that introduces really the entire psalm, certainly this first section, is the word vain or vanity. Now, chances are when you hear this word and you and we associate it with the writing of Solomon, we immediately go to the book of Ecclesiastes you may immediately think of the second verse of that bur- of that book. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, you do not have to be a rocket scientist or a cemetery professor to know exactly what it is Solomon wants you to get. Everything is vanity, which I assume would include the statement, everything is vanity. Think about that tonight and see how long it takes you to go to sleep. But this word in Ecclesiastes, I wrote Exodus, which is not the verse that's supposed to be up there. That'll come later. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 2 uh, uh, that word vanity is at its root is the word vapor or breath. It it describes the pursuit or desire of something that is passing by, passing quickly. It is slipping away. And so if you read Ecclesiastes, he'll go through, I chased after this, it was vanity. I chased after that, it was vanity. I achieved this, it was a vapor. It was a chasing after the wind is the phrase that he uses. In this Psalm, however, the word we translate vain is actually from a different word. And this word is more difficult to translate with real precision. Your, your translation probably says vain, it may say something else. But, but, but at its root, from from, from the, the core idea at least, is the idea of false deceit or, or falsehood or even wickedness. You, you may have waste or wastefulness, something like that. You, you can see sort of what this is getting at. In the Mosaic Law, this word, we translate vain, can refer to a false report, Exodus 23, 1, a false witness, Deuteronomy 5, verse 30, or false worship, that is, idolatry, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13. It is almost always associated with the idea of Falsity. It is false. It is deceitful. It is falsehood. It is wicked. The first usage, which you've already seen, oh, I got those two mixed up. So there's your Ecclesiastes 1. Here is your thank you, Don. I guess you saw that. Here is your Exodus chapter 20. This is the first usage of the word. It's interesting. It is in the context of the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In deceitfulness in falseness right? because what is one of the main issues of, of the Ten Commandments? False worship. the worship of a false God, an idol. don't make a graven image of God And so here you see the pro- the proxy side of it so, so you see here don't take the Lord's name falsely, vainly, deceitfully. This helps us get to the cl- closer to what Psalm 1 and 27 is saying. What Solomon is telling us is that any building, any system, any program, any party, any policy is ultimately meaningless unless the Lord lies behind it. What lies behind what Solomon is saying is the distinction about between what is meaningful because it is rooted in truth and what is meaningless, that is what is rooted in truth. And non truth uh, lie. To spend one's life chasing after what is false to me seems meaningless, or in a word, vain. That is a meaningless life what does this look like practically right that's the big idea is is here's the secret to living the vain life right so so we've talked about the word but what is the works of such a vain life two things worth noting here in these two verses the first is um, theological independence theological independence Perhaps no word encapsulates what we think America means in the word independence, right? In fact, in our uh, 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 founding document, the founding document is not the Constitution. It is the Declaration of Independence. It was Lincoln who I think was right in saying that if we have questions about how to interpret the Constitution, we go back to the Declaration of Independence. That is our founding document. And there is the claim that we as a nation will be independent of Britain, of course, or the English. Now, we could add to this, which was developed much later, and we, we say it's the 20th century, pretty much everything bad in the world started in the 20th century, I think. Nevertheless, um, is, is, the, is what we could call philosophical individualism. That is that I am so independent, I, uh, the self is above everything else, that if, if you rob me of my truth, you're the bigot, you're the evil one. Now... Uh, This creates a serious problem for us, as you know, because you've turned on the telly and you've met your neighbor. Uh, It is a difficult issue. But the truth is, independence alone is a lie. To become independent of one thing is to become dependent on something else. You remember whenever you finally left mom and dad's house? Independence. That's great, right? Right? One of the things I tell young adults is, is they, they get frustrated, right? They're adults, but they're still living at home and they wonder why they're miserable. <laughs> I can tell you right now, you don't want to be with mom and dad. And here's the secret they don't tell you. Mom and dad don't want you around mom and dad, right? <laughs> but what do you discover when you finally get a little bit of independence, right? You step out there, what do you discover? I'm dependent on a whole lot of other things. A job that pays the bills, a roof that won't leak. A landlord that, that, that will answer my calls when I call, right? You know, you're, you become dependent on things. You cannot become absolutely independent. We as a nation, when we became independent of Britain, we became dependent on what, what became the American experiment, that, that we, we had to agree that, that no government is functional. So we have to become dependent on some governmental philosophy, worldview, and system. And that is the reality. Now, uh, you'll notice how in this psalm, Yahweh lies at its center stage. So we see there that unless the Lord builds a house... Its construction is in vain unless the Lord watches over a city. Its protectors are watching in vain. Notice here that, that Yahweh must be at the center of it all, right? It is God who is doing the ultimate work. However, what you also notice is that it is not at the exclusion of the work of of men and women so in both instances god and men are referenced so even though god must build the home it is men who are doing the actual construction although god must watch over the city it is watchmen who stay awake during the night both here the problem becomes when we isolate one from the other that's the point solomon is making that you can have construction Uh, without the Lord. You can have security without the Lord. That doesn't work. Now, there's nothing wrong with constructing houses and guarding cities. That's, That's a good thing. Solomon's point that unless God is at the center of that work, it is ultimately meaningless. It is a false security. It is a false comfort. It is a false achievement. Think about it. Solomon describes buildings here without purposes. He describes a house that isn't a home. He describes a walled city without people. Both are meaningless. Both are false. So what is the purpose of our work unless God gives it meaning? One could say they build a house because they can't afford it, but that will only last for so long. An empty house can be quite depressing. This is one of the things we've discovered. We have a serious problem with singleness among young adults. And when I say young adults, I mean now up to the point to where childbearing age is a thing in the past. We are within, by 2040, over half of US women will be childless by the time they are about 40. You wanna know what we've discovered about women who are childless by the time they reach say mid thirties? They are successful and they are miserable. They've reached the pinnacle of everything feminism has told them to achieve, and they are miserable. It's amazing how you can build a house and still not be a home. You can have, you could build a program or pass policy or achieve all your goals, and yet it is meaningless unless God is what lies behind it. Ultimate meaning in life stems from our creator. The creator designed everything with purpose and separation from the creator is separation from the purpose of the thing that we are seeking to achieve or possess. So if you want to live in vain, a vain, meaningless life, pursue a secular one. In fact, the very experiment of secularism is society without the divine. And what would Solomon say? That is a vain experiment. I can already tell you how it's going to end. If we were to tell Solomon that one thing, can we build a society without the divine at the core of it? He'll say, let me tell you what it'll look like, and he will describe what you saw in the news today, what you're reading on social media right now. It is predictable. Good luck finding meaning in work. You may have to turn to drugs or entertainments Being the boss or being single, being powerful, all you want. But emptiness will await your arrival. Theological independence is a vain life. Here's the second one. Directionless toil is the secret to a vain life. If secular pursuit is meaningless, then directionless labor, too, is vanity. The cycle described here is one of a lonely soul who rises early and sleeps later chasing the dream. Look at it again. It is in vain. There's that word again. It is in vain. You rise early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. It is vanity. It is meaningless. It is a false way of living. He describes one whose work consumes him. His desires enslave him. His dreams haunt him. Wisdom literature praises work. We, we, we've seen that in Proverbs over the last, I don't know, year and a half, two years or so. We, we've looked at all that Proverbs has to say. And Proverbs has a lot to say about work and labor. It praises work and labor. After all, we see in John chapter 5 that Jesus said, my father is working always, right? And and so I have come to work. God works, therefore work is good. I when, when God uh, rested on the seventh day, he's resting from his work as an act of reflection and honor of the work. We, we get those, work is good. However, work and the value of work must run deeper than our necessities. Work is a theological category. We don't think of it in that term. We think, oh, I gotta go to work, the mortgage is due this week. That's what we think. But really, it's a theological category. This is what we call the Protestant work ethic. Work is a reflection of being an image bearer of God. If God works, we're made to work. And that good work brings glory to God and that he is honored in good work. That is why we don't work to be men-pleasers. So Paul warns us in Colossians, we work to be God-pleasers. That God is honored in good work. It doesn't matter what the work is. If you clean the streets, Martin Luther King Luther would say, that that you'd be the best street cleaner that the world's ever seen. Why? Because you're not working for the mayor. You're working for the divine one. If you are the president of the United States, you don't work because you want your polls to look good, you want to win re-election, but because God's glory is at stake. doesn't matter, uh, but we must toil theologically. Now, the psalmist is describing one who works to provide for himself, rather than trusting in God's provision. That's the big idea. Is, is they wake up every morning panicked. I got to eat today. In fact, I'm already hungry. When do I get to break the fast, right? Breakfast. Well, I, I better get up early because, because I'm in charge of seeing, seeing to it that everything is taken care of. I remember when my wife and I, we were, um, uh, we were pregnant with, with, with our, our son. So we were brand new to this stuff. We were we were clueless, right? We were young pups, about 23 at the time. I hadn't been married very long, and, and we, we just clueless, clueless about everything, as I'm sure you weren't. And and so we took these uh, baby classes. That's not what they were called. Basically, um, we I was forced to watch videos of other women give birth. That meant I couldn't sleep. And then... Um, Um, We we had doctors and nurses come and talk about the uh, labor process, and that, that was good. We, we, we talked about how to swaddle a baby. I became an expert alerter, right? I mean, I was gifted with that. I can't do it now because I don't have to. But back then, I was really, really good at it. And I remember one guy, he 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 kept stepping out. Uh, you know, we'd watch a video or have a guest speaker, something like that. And this thing going about two hours every week for like six weeks, something like that. And he would just keep sneaking out and, and it became a distraction. I remember when we, we took our break, they'd have little snacks and, you know, drinks, whatnot. I remember his his very pregnant I assume wife, comes out and says, you know, honey, what's going on? You know, that's, that's stereotypical. I'm sorry. And and right, and, and he goes, well, man, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. But I just knew the minute I, I, I stepped out from the work, everything would just fall apart. They can't do nothing without me. Even though I was a young pup and pretty clueless about everything. It's like three weeks ago um, that I thought it'd be fine without you. It'd be fine without you. You just need to believe they won't be fine without you. That's the difference. You see the vain toil? That's the vain toil. And that's the attitude that, that, is, that, that you have here. That, 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 that the, the person here that they rise early and go to bed late is someone who is trying to extend the length of days to secure their own well-being maybe it isn't for for food and drink and shelter maybe those things are secure maybe it's it's a better retirement uh, the dream home the the ideal living space or or the promises you made your spouse when you were dating you give them this lifestyle or or that you would travel to a certain place and and whatever it might be you think if i can extend the days a little longer get a little extra overtime in save just enough money then my dreams will be realized then i will be happy then joy and contentment will will, will be mine. And what you discover is, no, I, I, I thought I was working for food, but what I've been consuming is anxiety, worry, stress, and weariness. That is vanity. That is meaningless. Compare that to the man who trusts in the Lord, who can find pleasure in his work and value in rest. The purpose of the Sabbath law, as we discussed not too long ago, was to remind the Jews that God gives ultimate rest. He gives ultimate rest. If you want more of this, we'll see it in a few weeks of the first year of Matthew chapter 6. So stop worrying about what you will eat or what you will wear. If God will take care of the birds, he'll take care of you. Americans are known for their work ethic, although decreasingly known for that. We are all guilty of wanting to chase the dream. And this is true whether you are in ministry, whether you're a state worker, or you are in private uh, practice. But we all want to be wealthy. We all want to be in charge. We all want to be successful because we have all bought into the American myth. No wonder Americans are so exhausted. So exhausted. At some point we need to pause and think, what in the world are we doing? Something needs to change. If our life has no meaning because we have have surrendered the creator and in its place we are chasing after myths, we have discovered the secret of vain living. There's something here, which is why I I wasn't able to make it past verse 2. Forgive me. There's something strange about these two. I was reading them and reading them and reading them and reading them. And there's this something strange to me. You tell me if I'm off basis here. You you correct me if I'm wrong. And if so, I'll I'll come back later and correct myself. Is Solomon describing the Garden of Eden? There, There are some weird words here. You're looking for him now, aren't you? Because I'm willing to bet, if I'm right, you'll see it too. Now, we're, we're going to stop at verse 2. And when we get to verse 3 on down, maybe we'll see more of this. But I've not been able to make it past verse 2. Can I give you just a few things that jumped off the page for me? Now, I could be wrong on this. But look at verse 1. He, uh, unless the Lord builds the house, That word building describes construction or to to erect a building. The first time it is used in the Bible is when God took Adam's rib and constructed, builds, or the word we use is create or made, Eve. I'll, I'll, I'll throw it up here so you know that I'm not crazy. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, So you can tell I'm taking it from King James, the software I use. Made he a woman, brought him to That's the word used here. Notice here in Genesis 2, Adam's pursuit of fulfillment was vanity. If we had time, I I could show it to you, but I trust you're familiar with the story. You you remember the story, right? Genesis 2. What you get is uh, everything was good, right? Everything is good, except there was no helper for him. That wasn't good. It's not good that man was alone. So what does God tell Adam to do? Well, he says, well, what you need to do is work. You need to work. What is the work that Adam had? Well, he had to work the garden, till the ground, all that sort of stuff. But also you'll notice is after it says it's not good for man to be alone, God says what he needs is a few pets. And he starts naming all the animals. I had our dog in today. I tell you, my dog is the best reading partner I've ever had in my life. It's a great reading partner. My kids aren't. Certainly my kids aren't. I'm trying to read, and, and uh, my daughter and, 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 and McDonnie's daughter are over, and it's my daughter who's over singing Veggie Tales, right? Everybody's got a water buffalo. That's why I'm not in choir. Yours is fast, but my... And I'm sitting there trying to read. Like, I've got to read that paragraph again, right? Go to your room, right? I'm trying to read. You know who doesn't do that? My dog. She'll lay there, eat her bone, I'll pet her. We get along just fine. Just fine, right? So what God shows us is that Adam has a job to do. And he finds good purpose and fulfillment in it. He's being used by God to do something constructive. Because if men aren't constructive, they're often destructive. Turn on your news. But it still isn't what he's looking for. So God has to make him. Build him, erect him, a helpmate. Unless God builds the house, it is in vain. Or consider the next phrase there in verse 1 unless the lord watches over the city that word watches is such a fascinating word in english what we're doing is we're pairing the word watch and the 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 watchmen right that's good english because we're seeing the connection between the two words even though it's not in hebrew we as english readers we can see that connection good translation nothing wrong with it the word however in genesis is associated with the word keep it's actually a priestly word I, I can't chase that rabbit forgive me Genesis 2:15 The Lord God took the man Put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it, to till it, to keep it, right? And we understand he's to work in the garden. Those two verbs, dress and keep, from the King James, those will later be used to describe the work of the priest. Remember that, that, that the part of his work was to guard the holy, sacred space of the garden, which is where he fails letting the serpent in. And that's what priests were to do, to keep everything unclean from coming into the temple. And that word keep is used here. Now, it is used again in Genesis chapter 3 with the cherubim, right? When Adam and Eve sin, Adam is in exile as the priest of God's garden, God's temple, sacred space. So what does he do? He sends the uh, divine beings who have their primary job is to guard sacred space. The cherubim keep the garden in the same way the cherubim in Solomon's temple keep the temple, the Holy of Holies. That's why the Ark of the Covenant, what's hovering over them is cherubim. It's the same word used here, unless God keeps the city. Unless God watches over it. It's the same idea present. Verse two, you'll notice there, it is vain that you rise up and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. It's the same word used in the garden narrative. And then notice the bread of anxious toil. That word anxious is often translated as sorrow. That wouldn't work too well probably in this passage, but, but that's the idea of it. And this is quoted directly from the Genesis account. In fact, I can tell you that the first time this word is used is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. The second time it's used, Psalm 127. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing in pain. You will bring forth children. Your desire will be contrary to your husband. He will rule over you. You will suffer sorrow, pain, anxiety, I don't think, and maybe I'm wrong, I don't think these hyperlinks are accidental. What separates Eden from the wilderness? Because Solomon is writing from the perspective of the wilderness. But he wants to get us back to the garden. From the vain life to the blessed life. What is the difference? What separates them? The answer should be obvious from the text. Intimacy with God. Unless the Lord builds, unless he watches, it is in vain. One cannot read, starting in Genesis 4, throughout the rest of the Bible, not to mention world history and modern issues, without mourning the depth of human sorrow, mourning the depth of human suffering, anxiety, vanity, violence, and meaninglessness. Perhaps the best word we could use here is the word vain. How many of us think we are pursuing the great life when we have settled for the vain life? A life lived apart from the divine is directionless. It is meaningless. It is vain. Surely after century upon century after century, living east of the garden, Believing that we can handle things ourselves, surely by now we would have discovered something needs to change. Well, in May 1787, delegates from around the colonies gathered in Philadelphia to draft a constitution. We had declared our independence. And now we were independents. The question is, what were we going to be dependent on? Well, as you can imagine, when you get a bunch of politicians together, um, things get complicated. The only thing they could agree on was that George Washington should be the chairman of the delegation. Other than that, they couldn't agree on left, right, up, down. They couldn't agree on nothing. And they were on the brink of having to shut everything down. Before the American experiment could start, it didn't work out. Until an 81 year old man by the name of Benjamin Franklin, you should Google him, he stood up to say something. I want to read some of what he said. In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark, defined political truth, we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of Lights to illuminate our understanding. In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequently instances of a superintending providence in our favor, to that kind Providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. We need to bring the word felicity back. And we, we can agree on that. We'll vote on in the next business meeting. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? he asked. Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth. That God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down the future ages. Little did he know, he was being prophetic. Unless the Lord builds a nation, those who labor do so in vain. Unless the Lord builds a home, those who construct it do so in vain. Unless those who build your life, unless the Lord is the one who builds your life, you will find the secret to a meaningless existence. Well, on that note, Let's go to Lord in prayer.